For years, I just dreaded going to the dentist. But at Advanced Dentistry, I don't have to. First and foremost, they want you to feel comfortable when you walk in. Like, you'll feel it. Whereas in the past, I might have gone into the dentist and thinking, I might feel some pain at some point. But with IV sedation, it can be something that you don't dread. If you've been avoiding the dentist because of fear, worry, or just not wanting to be judged, you're not alone. Visit NoFearDentist.com to learn how IV sedation can change your life. Hey, this is DeRay, and welcome to Pod Save the People. In this episode, it's me, Sam, Kaya, and Diara, as usual, talking about the news that you probably didn't hear in this last week, but that you should know. And then I sit down with Mary Kay Henry, the president of the SEIU, one of the largest unions in the country, to talk about union work, what's ahead, and things that we should be paying attention to. Let's go. It feels like the weeks are just going by and by. I will say, I'm not going to lie, I was happy that I was not in uh, in town during July 4th and I skipped the fireworks because I can only imagine that it sounded like a battalion outside and I saw videos and it was like, it just seemed like the fireworks were endless. Uh, how was this whole sort of moment this last weekend for you all? You know, this weekend was a pretty chill for me. You know, uh, Ariel and I just stayed in, like we didn't go out and see fireworks or any of that. We ordered from the boil in New York, which is like this incredible place where they have like the garlic crab and, uh, you know, they had like crab legs and stuff, which is like the first time I've had that in a really long time because of, I don't know, quarantine has just been forever. Did it come in one of those bags, like a plastic bag? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it came in the plastic bag. I put that in like a big tray, like an aluminum tray, put it in the oven. It was delicious. Like I, you know, something where quarantine has just been, since late February, I've been in quarantine. So I went to Dallas once, but other than that, really have stayed home. And I just forgot about like all of these aspects of New York City that I've come to love. I've just haven't been able to go to like restaurants have been closed, everything's been closed. But this was like a good reminder of like what's out there and that I need to go outside at some point. And I hope that they can continue to get things under control in New York. It seems like the only place left that is sort of getting better still, while everywhere else seems to be descending into further chaos. So good on New York City, and I hope that that trend keeps going down with, in terms of coronavirus here. Yeah, my weekend was chill too. Paola is actually in Arizona, where the numbers are highest, covering a story on Latinx folks dealing with the impact and trauma of COVID. So, you know, I'm just waiting here for her to bring the COVID back to me. So we'll see how that goes. But, you know, it's for the greater good, I suppose. Yesterday, I spent the 4th in Jersey City, which was splendid. I don't think I've spent that much time in Jersey City. I feel like all the people that live in Jersey City are going to say, why is she talking about Jersey City like it's Hong Kong? It's very close. But to me in Brooklyn, it's very far away, particularly given the quarantine. But it was a great day and super chill and... I had just enough wine to be able to sleep through all the fireworks. So (laughs) it was great. I spent the day in Westchester, um, which is where I'm originally from. Yeah, out there. And in fact, it was my birthday this week. And so my thank you, thank you. It was a milestone. It was a big one. I'm still not comfortable exactly with the number, but it is what it is. Come through 50. Um, Yes! And so we had a little socially distanced party last night, about 10 of us. 
There were lots of fireworks. We were out in the backyard so that we could actually have the appropriate amount of space. Um, there were lots of fireworks, lots of noise, but after a while we just moved the party inside. And so I didn't hear a ton of fireworks because we have music, but I saw some of these videos from Chicago and LA that literally just showed stuff popping all night long. In fact, I didn't come home until pretty late and still fireworks were going at like two thirty, three o'clock in the morning. It was bananas. It is. One of the other things that I saw this past week was that the Redskins seemingly might change their name. I will say at the press release where they said they're considering it, it was like they couldn't have said Redskins more. They were like, we are going to stop using this phrase, but let us say it 35 times in the press release. I was like, okay. Uh, do you think it'll change? Uh, I mean, it, sounded like with that press release, they were not committing to anything. They were like, we will review and have a process of considering potentially re-evaluating the name. So I I'm not hopeful, but I don't know why they would say that unless they just want to sort of drag their feet until sort of the moment puts a little bit less pressure on them. Because I feel like if they were going to change their name, they would have just said it like straight up. I don't know why they need an extended process to figure that out. The owner has been unapologetic to date about the fact that he would never, in fact, he told somebody in an interview, you can use all caps, never change the name. But it's interesting to see what happens now that Nike has pulled their merchandise, now that FedEx which is the sponsor of their field, is putting pressure on them, and Pepsi. I mean, when it starts to hit you in your pocketbook, I wonder if you make different decisions. And also, I wonder, like, what is this review process? It's racist. What further review is that? So I think it's also just, you know, if you're going to be this bold in terms of keeping the name, just call it what it is instead of all of this, posturing around not changing the name for issues that are still unseen. I mean, at one point, if I remember correctly, Dan Snyder, who is the owner of Washington's football team, which is what some of us choose to call it, paid off a Native American tribe to appear with him, I think, in some things. Like, this is really intentional kind of whatever, I don't know, racism. Like, racism, what could I tell you? Racism. <laughs> Are people still watching football? Not me. I just feel like so many folks that I, I talk to like just aren't even watching football anymore. So I feel like that's just... Lots of people are still watching football. There are a lot of people still watching football, waiting to see what the NFL is going to do. Yeah. Lots of people are still watching football. It is sort of interesting because every time that there is movement on addressing some of the broader issues of structural and systemic racism, it seems like we always end up in this conversation about symbolic victories and statues and names of teams and companies. Part of me is like, yes, we should change the names. Yes, we should acknowledge that you know these statues and symbols uh, deify or, or reify white supremacist symbolism and that that has to come down. But at the same time, it's like that is the least that we could do in this moment. And there is so much more that needs to happen in terms of racial and economic equity, actually redistributing wealth and resources, changing policies and systems. And uh, the more that we sort of get trapped in a conversation about the symbolic victories, the less that I feel like there's momentum around the broader things that need to happen. Um, so I just want to sort of name that because it's probably not a coincidence that we end up in this place every single time. That is true, Sam. But they need to change that name. Absolutely. And it shouldn't <laughs> be a fight to do that. Like, that should be an immediate thing. 
thing, and then we can move on to the ninety six thousand other things that need to happen. But that's you know, right. getting stuck on the name is like that's. I don't know how we got here. Well, it's a little like the consolation prize, right? Like, I won't do the big things. I won't stop killing you out in the street. I won't fix income inequality and make, you know, fair wages. But I will take Aunt Jemima off of the pancake box. And I will take down some statues or I'll let you take down some statues or whatever, right? Or I'll change names. And I think we have to keep folks focused on what the real wins are and not just these symbolic wins. So to that point, my news today is focused on one of these structural inequities. And that is something that I just learned about, which is the inequity in property tax assessments. So you may think that, you know, if you own a home, that you're paying a similar amount of property tax on your home, regardless of race. Um, But unfortunately, like everything else in America, uh, there is racism embedded in how much you pay in property tax. So a new analysis that was just profiled in the Washington Post uh, by two economists, uh, Troop Howard and Carlos Avenancio Leon uh, found in looking at records over a decade, data covering over a decade of time and over 100 million uh, property tax records across the country, they found that black households pay on average about 13% more in property tax than white households in similar situations. So this is important for a number of reasons. I mean, first and foremost, because it comes directly out of your pocketbook. This is an economic issue. It is economic racism. Uh, But also when you think about some of the factors that contribute to this, it traces back to the continued legacy of residential segregation and systematic racism, whereby households in black neighborhoods, when a property tax assessor comes to assess the value of those households, it tends to be that the property tax assessor does not take into account the ways in which households in black neighborhoods value at a lower rate than households in white neighborhoods. And so you actually get, your house gets valued and the amount of property tax that you have to pay is tied to a level of value that actually is not true to the actual amount that your house is worth. So uh, this has been well documented that households in black neighborhoods not only value at a lower rate, but it's harder to sell a household in a black neighborhood because a lot of white families just simply will not buy households in black neighborhoods. And so what that means is while you your property tax assessor may believe that your house is worth, let's say, $400,000, and you get taxed on a house as if it's worth $400,000. When you actually go to sell that house, it turns out you might only get, let's say, $350,000 or $300,000 for it, uh, despite paying a tax on a higher rate. And so this is important for a number of reasons, but it's especially important in the context of the ongoing conversation around uh, police funding, uh, because it turns out that property taxes are a huge source of funding uh, for city governments and for police departments. Uh, so, And that's not just true for police departments, also true for schools and a variety of other city services. Uh, so when you look, for example, at the city budget for New York City, about 44% of the total revenue that the city makes is from property tax. Uh, In LA, it's about a third of all revenue that the city makes from property taxes. And so what this means is that black families are actually paying more into uh, a pool of money that ends up funding police departments that then disproportionately target uh, those same individuals and families with over-policing. And so this is another dimension of systemic racism uh, that we see that both takes money disproportionately from black families and then uses that money to fund oppressive systems that target those same communities 
and families. So I wanted to bring that to the conversation here because uh, we often talk about issues of structural and systemic racism. This is one that I just simply uh, was not aware of until I read this article. I thought one of the things that was interesting about this one too, Sam, was that black families really weren't exposed to the fact that they could appeal their tax assessment, which I found to be fascinating too, because I think it's just another layer of the structural racism, because it's like the system is not built for you, and therefore you don't feel comfortable or know the different levers within this system. So when it comes to, you get this tax bill and you're like, this doesn't seem right. It's not your inclination to appeal it. I thought that was really interesting too, and just some of the activism that's happening in cities like Chicago when it comes to actually appealing the tax assessment and using using the process it's kind of like a social engineering i thought that was really interesting yeah just building on that you know there's levels to this right and when they did look at the chicago data what they found was that uh, black families were less likely to appeal those assessments. But then when they did appeal, in those cases, they were less likely to win the appeal. And when they did win the appeal, they often got less of a benefit based on that award uh, than a white family appealing an assessment. So there's so many different levels to this, both in the way in which the initial assessment disproportionately imposes a higher burden on black families. And then uh, you have a less of a likelihood of even being able to appeal that in the first place. And when you do appeal it, you often get less in return. So every single level of this is problematic and it illustrates a broader system uh, that is continuing to target and prey upon black families. I thought one of the things that was interesting about this is that as is always the case, this hits hardest for our lowest wage earners, um, but also that you know high earning African-Americans are also significantly affected. Buying a home is sort of, your economic stability. It is the American dream. It's what families shoot for. And there are so many interesting aspects to owning a home. We don't teach one another. I've had lots of conversations with my friends about who's the best contractor, but I've never had a conversation with my friends about property tax assessments. And this is just sort of another backdoor way that we get screwed even when we are trying to do the right thing like own property. But I think that this, we gotta open up some community conversations about this and get people to understand the role that property tax assessment plays and what tools and vehicles we have our dis- at our disposal to be able to fight you know, yet another way that, that folks discriminate against us. You know, what I was struck by is, Sam, as you transition into this conversation about uh, the attention that we pay to symbolism sometime at the expense of focusing on structures, it's always a reminder to me that, like, the way structural racism works is often in these ways that are, like, so not obvious. Like, it's not the stuff you see on the news. It's not, it's, like, in things like property taxes. So what I saw in this that was, like, fascinating to me was first I was just like blown by the stat that one in five black households have reported missing a mortgage payment since mid-March of this year because of COVID compared to one in 20 white ones. Like that just, one in five is an astounding number. To think that the impact of COVID like down the line could be a dramatic decrease in home ownership or like it could be an increase in defaulting on mortgages, like that could be what happens in black communities disproportionately is like fascinating. So this made me sort of like think about that. 
But it also made me think about uh, this part, Sam, where they talked about that many county assessors intentionally would overvalue black properties in direct retaliation for black political action. So they would overvalue the property so that the taxes would be higher. And there's the example that they give uh, is that there was a case in 1932 where a black North Carolina resident was taxed for the value of two stray dogs that had been seen on her property. And you're like, wow, right? Like the way that the system responds to activism and the way that the system responds to black people with agency is always trying to find these these ways. It's not jail always. It's not something overt like a cross on your front lawn. It's something like this. So you are, they are reconstructing the system to take the money you have at every step of the way to like chip at your power. And you're like, Phew, I didn't even... You know, we always talk about how maniacal and insidious white supremacy is. But in reading this, I was like, wow, y'all really went through depths to get us on this one. Um, and that's like what I what stuck out to me. Last week, uh, we talked about school reopening, primarily from a teacher's perspective. We talked about how the teachers in Fairfax County were refusing to go back to school physically because they didn't feel like it was safe. And we tried to sort of excavate some of the um, decisions that school districts have to make um, and some of the interdependencies that are kind of holding up this decision. And this week, I thought it would be interesting to think about it from some parents' perspective. And so there was an article in the, an opinion piece in the New York Times entitled, In the COVID-19 Economy, You Can Have a Kid or a Job, You Can't Have Both. And this is a working mother's sort of expression of what's what her feelings are as we try to do two things. One, reopen school in a way that supports social distancing and uh, decreasing the capacity of kids who are in a building at a particular time, while at the same time reopening the economy and asking parents to go back to work. And so this woman, Deb Perelman, who is a writer and a food blogger, kind of gave voice to what I hear lots of parents talking about, working parents talking about, that are not part of the broader conversation. And that is that, you know, as we look at some of these schemes where kids are at home 100% of the time, or in this woman's case, her kids can go to school physically one out of every three weeks. And she and her husband are supposed to go back to work. And those two things literally cannot happen at the same time and in the same place. And this is something that nobody is talking about. We're rushing to reopen the economy. We are being very careful about what school reopening means and are not really talking about how this affects parents. And these parents are trying to work from home. They are managing distance learning. Many of them are working much longer, much later hours because they're trying to both run school and then do their work many times into the wee hours of the night. Um, they're burnt out. Um, but they are very clear that if they are going to go back to work, schools have to reopen. In fact, some of the parents are very clear that safety is not an issue. It doesn't matter whether schools are safe or not. They have to work. And so they are going to send their kids back to school as soon as they can physically because literally they cannot afford not to work. They are sympathetic to the plight of teachers. They don't want teachers to get sick. 
But they also, this woman brings up a really interesting point, which is if my kids are going to multiple caregivers over the two weeks that they are not in school, then that actually might expose teachers to even a greater level of possibility of getting COVID. Whereas if they just went to school for the whole three weeks, they would be in a, a an environment where we know cleaning is happening, where we know social distancing is happening, you know, where the chances of being infected are lower. There's also this great conversation about mommy shaming that is brought up in that, you know, there are people who have means and who have wealth who are talking about, you know, well, how come you don't enjoy spending more quality time with your kid? And that's not true for everybody. Many of the mothers are actually lamenting that the policy is being guided by people with privilege, people who can pay for a nanny or pay for a tutor um, or people who have grandparents who can help. And that effectively we're declaring working parents inessential, And so I posted this um, to my Facebook page just to get some feedback from working people that I know. And what was interesting is a lot of, most of the people who responded in the conversation were women, and they felt like we aren't talking about this because it mostly affects women. It's a women's issue. If it affected men, then in fact, we'd be having robust conversation about it. Um, But, you know, these moms on, you know, that I've interacted with, are frustrated because they are not feeling like there are any creative solutions coming from government. That, again, this is a case where the lowest income people are affected most significantly by this. Their kids are affected significantly because gaps are widening. And literally, they feel like, you know, working mothers are going to be pushed out of the labor force or into part-time jobs. And we shouldn't have to make that kind of a choice. And so I think, again, this is just another layer of the school opening onion that we're peeling back, right? Again, no easy answers. And I think this mom went out of her way to sort of say, it's not us against teachers, right? But our reality is we can't work and stay home with our kids doing distance learning. And so I think there are no easy answers around this school reopening thing, but we have to keep on peeling back these different perspectives. Um, I've been interested also to hear kids talking about what they want to happen. And lots of kids would love to go back to school. They miss the social interaction. Um, They miss the academic challenge. They miss physical activity. They miss connections with their teachers. And so I think we have a lot to consider as we think about what happens in the fall. I'll just say, you know, there are a lot of my friends who have kids. And when I look at the plans, I just don't logistically know how you do a week on a week off. I'm like, I don't like, it makes sense to me. Like I get why you would offer that as a solution. I was talking to a teacher in Chicago this morning and she was like, one of the ideas that she has been told is that they might do it where the kids stay in one room and the teachers rotate. And you're like, that is, you know, I get why you would offer that, but like anybody who's taught would be like, can't work. Nobody wants to be the third teacher going into a room full of kids where they have not moved That's at right. all, all day. Like that is yeah. a nightmare, right? Um, or even, you know, you think about the, I think about when I used to run an after school program or when I worked in buildings and in the district. Pre-K, right? Kids who, like, they ain't never been to school before. They have literally <laughs> never been to a school day. So the parents don't know what to do, really. The kids don't know what to do. And it's like, 
like I just think about how hard that must be. And I, I'm torn because I, as somebody who had COVID and I don't know if I'll ever get my sense of taste or smell back, I'm sensitive to this. I also am like, wow, what happens when we might have like a generation might be too strong, but a whole swath of kids who really like didn't learn, right? Like they, we just, like public education already wasn't holding up into the bargain, mm-hmm. but then all of a sudden it's like, you think about those five, six-year-olds who like just won't learn how to read, you know, like you'll be, you'll be learning phonics for the first time at seven or eight, you know, nine. like, so that really, like I'm, I'm, I'm struggling. And I know a lot of parents who like, you know, they do the homeschool thing. They make sure the kids sit down the zoom, but they don't really understand the content, right? Like they've never taught anybody how to read. They've never taught somebody how to like, you know, add for the first time. Like that's actually really hard. You know, your article makes me think about like, if this is going to be the reality, is there anything that we can do to support parents differently who have to be home? Like, and not that we are making them into the teacher, but like, I don't know. I just, all the parents I know who have gone through this period really struggled to like make it work for everybody. Yeah. So one of my friends has kind of leveraged her niece who is home from college, who's doing online classes. And in fact, her niece does the schedule for her fourth grader every day and looks over the homework and whatnot. And that allows my friend to work. Um, And the college student is actually managing the distance learning. And we will have lots of college students who don't return to campus next year. We'll have, you know, we have AmeriCorps members. We have young people who've graduated and who won't get jobs. And um, there have been a lot of conversations about how we radically expand AmeriCorps. This is the national service program where young people give a year of civic service in exchange for some scholarship money and some loan forgiveness. But what are the ways that we can deploy young people either physically in class to break kids up into smaller groups and have lots more adults in the schoolhouse or even how they support distance learning and support parents at home? We're also, if you look at lots of school plans, there's no more just classroom, like literally every space in the building from cafeterias to gyms to you know, hallways are being redeployed as learning spaces so that you can meet some of the social distancing needs. But this is uncharted territory for everybody, right? And so you could be mad at schools or you could be mad at, you know, state policymakers or you could be mad at parents or teachers or whatever. We are all muddling through this together. Yeah, I mean, Kaya, like like you said, this is uncharted territory. And it is one of these situations where you would hope that the government would do more than they're currently doing to support families, to support parents, uh, so that you don't have to make this uh, impossible choice between making money to put food on the table and being able to send your child to school to learn how to read, right? And so instead of that, uh, we're seeing the government gave that $1,200 check one time, hasn't issued further checks, that extra $600 in unemployment benefits expire soon. Uh, there is no effort federally to really provide the support that families would need to be able to weather this storm. And then you look at schools and they're just sort of having to deal with this impossible situation in ways that nobody can predict what can happen. And you're seeing these stories where, you know, for example, in Israel, they had uh, school was back in session for a couple of weeks. And then, you know, COVID uh, caused it to go back out of session again very quickly. Um, similarly, you know, there was a teacher's conference where they were planning what to do for the school year. Uh, one of the teachers uh, had COVID, and so they a whole set of school leaders now 
uh, have to be in quarantine. So I just don't see logistically how school can even be back in session. Like, I just don't see it. But I, I hope that they can find ways. I hope that we can be creative. And uh, I'm worried about all of the kids that just don't have access to the internet, don't have access to the ability to do distance learning, um, which is going to leave a whole lot of kids behind at this crucial moment. You know, Kai, what you said in terms of just kind of like reimagining like what this response will be and maybe, you know, leveraging AmeriCorps more. I think it is, you know, a new way for us to think about what it is to be a citizen in this moment, what it is to be a neighbor, what it is to be a friend. Because I think part of it is even for us folks that don't have kids, like we should be as invested in what the government is going to do, what the school board is going to do in terms of the plan to go back, because ultimately it is it is going to affect all of us. de Blasio tweeted on July 2nd, we're deep in planning to make the 2020-2021 school year the best academic year New York City has ever had. Health and safety will come first as we work to get our kids back in school. What? (laughs) Best year? People have, like, like, I don't even have to go through, like, why that doesn't make sense, but, like, what that tweet should have been is a rallying cry, a a call to action for everyone in New York to say, we are a part of the city getting back on its feet. And that includes what is going to happen with our students and what the needs of parents are. So I just think it is, it's just a, a lackluster approach so far. And it's also just an approach that doesn't take into account how creative we have to be, how we have to reimagine what each of us, what our new responsibilities are to our neighbors, to our friends, as we continue to, you know, navigate through this. Diara, I mean, I agree with that. I think it's actually even more than that, right? So we have figured out how to support the airline industry or how to support businesses as they try to reopen. Schools reopening should be the priority of the government. Before we open bars, before we open massage parlors and tattoo joints, no disrespect to those business people, at the end of the day, like this whole entire country should understand if we don't figure out the school's question, like the rest doesn't really matter. And we have already talked about the tremendous lack of leadership at the federal level. But I mean, this is again, where governors and and mayors have had to try to figure this out. The the governor in Connecticut said, we are going back 100%. All the kids are going back to school in the fall the way we did, because I cannot reopen my economy. If that's your stance, governor of Connecticut, what are you doing to bring to bear all of Connecticut's resources to make sure that these schools are operating the way that they need to be operating? Nobody's answering that question. And so our priorities are all messed up around where school sits and how important school is, not just for parents, but for kids. My news this week is from the New York Times. It hit on July 1st and features the incredible work of Rosie Lee Tompkins, a quilting artist whose work is currently showing at UC Berkeley Art Museum and Pacific Film Archive. Y'all, I gasped when I saw Rosie Lee's work. Her quilts are absolutely stunning, um, both in the colors, but also in, in the political and social commentary that so vividly comes through. One of her works is actually 14 feet across. It's the size of a small billboard. So basically, Rosie Lee Tompkins is the Beyonce of quilting, y'all. As I scrolled through the collection, it could not have been clear to me that Rosie Lee's work is black radical expression. It signifies radical healing, radical love, radical joy, all the vibrations that we need right now. Roberta Smith, the art critic that wrote this Times piece, has been following Rosie since 2002. 
And I just want to quote Roberta Smith because I just think this is so, it's just beautiful. Tompkins' work, I came to realize, was one of the century's major artistic accomplishments, giving quilt making a radical new articulation and emotional urgency. I felt I'd been given a new standard against which to measure contemporary art. I mean, I don't know if I have to say this outright, but obviously Rosalie Tompkins is a black woman, y'all, from uh, Richmond, California. Let me talk a little bit more about what the piece tells us about Rosie Lee's story. Um, And also just like, and this is symptomatic of like a lot of black women artists in particular, it's always really hard to find like first person accounts of who they are in their story. So this was like from cobbling together what Roberta Smith said and just some other things I found on the online. So Rosie Lee was born in 1936 in Gould, Arkansas. She was one of 15 children and grew up picking cotton and working on quilts with her mother. In 1958, as the New York Times put it, she was part of the post-war Great Migration. But in my words, and this is what we know to be true, she was like six million other black folks that fled the South because of racial violence and terror lynchings. She went to Milwaukee, then Chicago, and eventually settled in Richmond, California. So in Richmond, she was a nurse for two decades, a job that she's said to have loved. On the weekends, Rosie would sell her quilts. So that's where she was discovered, of course, discovered with quotes. Um, she was discovered by this quilt collector. His name is Eli Leon. Um, and so he was a collector of black quilts in particular. And, you know, for folks that don't know, like black folks have a really deep, long tradition, like from that came from Africa and then um, through through slavery, that quilting is just like really part of the, 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 the culture um, for a number of reasons. Um, so ultimately, Eli, this guy Eli Leon, he ultimately contributed to the national awareness of quilts, particularly those by black quilt artists. Um, and the New York Times piece also was very interesting too, and it put me on to other artists that y'all should also check out, like Bill Trailer, who was self-taught and actually born into slavery in Louds County in Alabama, right outside of Montgomery. Joseph Yoakum, another self-taught landscape artist, beautiful work. And it also reminded me of somebody that I was familiar with but had forgotten, um, an artist by the name of Martin Ramirez, who was a self-taught artist who spent most of his adult life institutionalized in California mental hospitals. And so it's interesting because since these folks are self-taught, like the the artistic canon, it kind of relegates them to folk, folk artists. But if you ask me, I just feel like these are, it's probably some of the most brilliant art um, in terms of what America has to offer in terms of artists. So that's Quilt Lady, as DeRay puts it, Rosie Lee Tompkins. Um, and check her out. So this, so if you go, this is really cool too, just for, for, you know, we're all at home. But if you visit UC Berkeley, like their website, um, you can take a 70 minute virtual tour or you can click through her work on your own through a slideshow. Um, there's a family guide there with activities and questions to inspire thought and reaction to the work. It's family fun, or you can take somebody on a virtual date, y'all. Check it out. There's a story about judges, and you know we we talk about judges a lot in the com- in the national conversation. There's been a lot about prosecutors. There's been this role of the courtroom, uh, but I'm telling you, this story really blew my mind. It, I can think about a million projects I want to go back and figure out how we do after this. Let me just start by saying that what they acknowledge is that there are about 1,700 federal judges in the country, and they hear about 400,000 cases annually. But like with most things, most of the power is in the state and local level. There are nearly 30,000 state, county, and municipal court judges that handle over 100 million new cases a year, from traffic to murder to divorce 
uh, marital issues. You know, it's just like a whole host of things that these judges and their titles range from like justice of the peace to Supreme Court justice to, you know, court magistrate or something. But they have a lot of power. And we've covered some judge stuff before. Uh, but what they did in this study is that they went through and looked at judges who were disciplined for whatever reason. I didn't know that every state has some sort of mechanism for disciplining judges, but that makes sense. I, I want to learn much more about every state's discipline mechanism for judges. Uh, what they also show is that some of the mechanisms are essentially pointless. So places like Alabama, where every judge is elected in the state of Alabama, uh, the judicial oversight doesn't really exist, which they show. But the the shocking thing that they realize is that in their analysis, nine out of every 10 judges were allowed to return to the bench after they were sanctioned for misconduct, which is what the Reuters uh, study concluded. And this goes from people like in California, there was a judge who had sex in courthouse chambers, once with his former law intern and separately with another attorney. There's a New York judge who berated domestic violence victims and a judge in Maryland who, after he was arrested for drunk driving, he was allowed to return to the bench provided that he took a breathalyzer test before each appearance. But in reading this long study, it's like, or reading this long sort of expose, you see that judges have done so much harm to people's lives. These incredible sentences for minor offenses, like these incredible fines, like things that have no correlation to the harm that was committed. And the judge just gets like a slap on the wrist. They talk about Montgomery and, you know, the judge like comes out apologizing. And the conclusion is that the judge definitely violated his power. And he just like is going to retire. Mind you, the black people, black women, you know, disproportionately impacted by these decisions are now have to like figure out a way to keep going with no recompense, with no redress. Uh, and that just can't be right. So I do think about like, this has put a fire under me about like once we get through some of the police stuff, because I think that we can win on the police front and think about safety beyond policing in this lifetime, that mass incarceration doesn't become mass by the things you see on TV, it becomes masked by these sort of things. It's like these random laws you never heard of. It's these judges who are doing wild things that we don't even know about. Uh, and that just like put a fire under me. So DeRay, you know, as, as you mentioned, this is a reminder that the system is bigger than the police or the prosecutors, that the judges, and there are so many other different actors and decision makers within the system that contribute to widespread and broad uh, misconduct and violence uh, against communities. And so uh, what was also interesting about this article is just the process by which uh, Reuters managed to obtain the data. Uh, so there's just like with policing and killings by police and other forms of police violence, there is no federal database of judicial misconduct. And so they had to go uh, state by state in some cases, you know, city or county county by county and obtain these records. They had to go through them. In many cases, uh, the judges were disciplined privately and not publicly, so they had to go through cases and track uh, for particular judges uh, whether there was past misconduct mentioned in a case that was made public to see whether there were private cases that were just not being shared with the journalists. And so they had to construct this database really from scratch uh, to be able to track judicial misconduct across the country. And they found more than 1,500 
100 cases of judicial misconduct through this approach. Um, but it is a reminder that in the absence of federal tracking of so many important issues that affect people's lives, it has been journalists, it has been organizers, it has been data scientists, and just people, everyday people who have constructed databases and added value to our collective understanding of core issues that impact people's lives uh, that the government can and should be tracking, but has just refused to do so. Don't go anywhere. More Pod Save the People is coming. Pod Save the People is brought to you by Factor. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no prep, no mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you always have time to enjoy nutritious, great tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from each week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. You can crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Now, let me tell you all, they sent me the Factor meals, and it is absolutely true. Two minutes, pop it in a microwave, and it literally is restaurant-quality food. So far, my favorites are chicken parmesan. I am a chicken parmesan connoisseur. This stuff is good. It has broccoli and tomatoes, and it is creamy and amazing. Mmm, yum. So easy to throw it in the microwave and have a good meal. I'm saving money. I'm not eating out at restaurants so much. It's healthy. Like, I cannot say more about Factor Meals. So if you want to be down with this, head to factormeals.com slash PSTP50 and use code PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code PSTP50 at factormeals.com slash PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Posse of the People is brought to you by BetterHelp. Now, y'all, the beginning of this year has just been a lot going on, like from work and family and friends and just, you know, the weather's been awful in New York City and Baltimore. There are a lot of stressors happening, big and small, And we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash people today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp. H-E-L-P.com slash people. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley, in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. 
you know, when I think about this moment, especially with the protests, it's like we've been here before. We were here in 2014 when we were in the street for 400 days. The country, it was an awakening for people. There were not as many structural wins as we wanted there to be. And we need to make sure that in this moment that we use this energy to push for structural wins so that we aren't back here again in similar ways. Netta is going to help us think about some things that have happened in this past week with regard to the protests, and I'm always happy to hear her voice. I was with her in the street in St. Louis and Ferguson in 2014, and we have stayed close ever since then. Netta, what's on your mind? Hey, everybody, it's Netta, and thanks for tuning back in. This week, I just want to talk about the mayor of Atlanta, Keisha Lance Bottoms. Last night, the mayor hosted a press conference with the parents of Sequoia Turner. Sequoia was an eight-year-old girl who was shot and killed Saturday night when at least two people opened fire on the vehicle she was riding in. Moments after the presser began, I started to see some of the highlights of Mayor Bottom's statements during the conference. In response to the shooting death of the eight-year-old girl in the city of Atlanta on Saturday, Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms said, It has to stop. You can't blame this on police officers. It's about the people who shot a baby in a car. And we're doing each other more harm than any officer on this force. Mayor Bottoms also said, if you want people to take us seriously and you don't want us to lose this movement, we can't lose each other. So I want to be clear that this is in no way excusing the horrific shooting death of this child in Atlanta. But it is super important to call out the language used by Mayor Bottoms as dangerous as well as continuing a harmful stereotype against our own people. And victim blaming, especially done by a public official, isn't it. And pretending that black people don't also care about intra-community violence is both insensitive and inaccurate. Black-on-black violence rhetoric is and will always be a racist white supremacist talking point. Mayor Bottoms is continuing to perpetuate this damaging narrative during the middle of a movement against police violence. I'm much more interested in hearing Mayor Bottoms' plans regarding building up healthy communities across the metro Atlanta. I want to know what Keisha's plans are to stabilize black communities affected by urbanization, poverty, gentrification, unemployment, lack of adequate health care, residential and racial segregation, and what her plans are to stop feeding the mass incarceration system. These are all issues I've heard my friends Shantae, Shawnee, and Whitney discuss as major issues there in Atlanta. And they are all connected. It's not just about a single incident. It's about access to opportunities in addition to justice. Conflating intra-community violence with a movement connected to eradicating police violence in America is dangerous it's lazy, and it's irresponsible. Combining protests against police violence, terrorizing our communities with a tragedy perpetuated by non-protesters is just another effort to delegitimize the current protest movement. And Black people aren't predisposed to committing more crimes against each other. Statistically, crime is generally racially segregated, including that most people commit crimes against people they live nearby or happen to already know. The majority of white murder victims each year are killed by white folks, but do we talk about white-on-white crime? No. In fact, the Bureau for Justice Statistics says that people in households at or below the federal poverty level had more than double the rate of violent victimizations as persons in high-income households. 
This is not the first time a public official has purposely used Black-on-Black violence as a response to our calls for justice and police shootings. But something about this just feels different. This is a Black Democratic mayor in a Black city talking to Black people. And oppression operates for Black people in power, too. Not just white folks, because of how power works in this country as a symptom of white supremacy. I'm also willing to bet anyone who is in the streets protesting, in the streets demanding justice for the deaths of black folks at the hands of police officers, are some of the most concerned citizens. Those protesters are some of the most aware of how systemic racism is working to keep working class and lower income black folks subjugated by law, even if the leadership is also black. Lastly, Mayor Keisha, we have not forgotten that the very Atlanta Police Department you are using racist rhetoric to deflect away from murdered Rayshard Brooks just a few weeks ago. We have not forgotten that. Before I go, I'd like to remind folks that equity and equality can only be achieved once we unravel the threat of white supremacy in all of our systems. And remember that we are responsible for our own learning and unlearning. And this is a process that never ends and is so necessary for us to reach the world that we dream of creating together. Thanks so much and talk to you guys next week. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Don't go anywhere. There's more to come. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Hey, everyone. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. America Henry leads the SEIU, the Service Employees International Union. She's the first woman to hold the position, and she's currently tackling a whole set of issues that impact her 2 million union members. We sat down to talk about protecting service workers during coronavirus and how the SEIU is trying to interact with new voters. Let's do it. Mary Kay, thanks so much for joining us today on Pod Save the People. I'm glad to be with you. Thanks. 
Now, I'm excited. You know, we've had some other labor leaders on, but mostly in the education space. I'm excited to talk about the SEIU. I'm excited for you to be here, especially in this moment where we're talking about race and justice in the country. Can you talk, though, just about how you got to organizing and can you help situate for people who understand labor, the labor movement, but have never heard of the SEIU or don't even know that they do know the SEIU? <laughs> uh, what is the role? What does it do? How does it fit into the labor context? I got started in organizing with uh, nursing home workers in California, and our union represents healthcare workers from nursing homes to home care and hospitals. And we represent janitors, security officers, and airport workers that do cleaning, uh, wheelchair attendants, the service jobs in airports. And then we represent all kinds of workers in public service, school workers who are the bus drivers, the cooks, the classroom assistants, the school crossing guards. In cities, we represent workers that are in the clerical jobs and professional jobs. So in public services, it's more of a range of people. And then we've been backing the fast food workers movement for the past seven years. So our union has 2 million members. We have millions more that we're trying to organize across the service and care sector. And we're about half people of color and half white. We are 70% women. Wow, the SEIU is 70% women? Yes. I didn't know that. Yes. Because of the healthcare jobs, DeRay, that we represent, they are the jobs that are dominant women. So we have a half a million home care providers. Those are mostly women of color, some white as well, but black and brown women, immigrant women of all uh, races in the home care sector. So that's one of the reasons we're a mostly women's union and janitorial work in commercial real estate used to be predominantly male, probably in the 70s and 80s. And it has shifted to more, again, predominantly black and brown women doing those jobs. And then in public services, there's probably a better gender balance there. But again, because of the job classes we represent, eligibility workers, social workers, uh, clerical workers were in the dominant women jobs. Got it. You know, I think about those job classifications that you identify, and it seems like they would be disproportionately impacted by uh, the pandemic. Is that, am I, am oh, I on the right track? Am I off? Like, yes, and, and what do yes. we do? Yes. You know, I've gotten to the point, DeRay, where I light a candle every morning um, as a way to make myself remember uh, the lives that have been lost in the last four months that didn't need to be sacrificed. And so many of our members on the front lines have been saying to me, oh, yeah, they're calling us essential now, but if we're so essential, why don't we have health care coverage? You know, if we're so essential, why don't we have two weeks of guaranteed paid sick time? Uh, my voice breaks because it's kind of a mixture of grief and outrage that, again, predominantly black and predominantly brown workers have been put in harm's way intentionally by our government and by corporations who have refused to do the right thing to equip people with the personal protective equipment they needed on the front lines of this pandemic from the very beginning. McDonald's Corporation is forcing people to wear dog diapers and coffee filters 
because they have not figured out how to equip their 800,000 employees with the personal protective equipment they need and with the plexiglass guards that have been installed in grocery stores that would help stop the spread. And there's no paid sick leave as a standard, and they've lobbied against it in Congress. During the CARES Act, they're lobbying against it now in the HEROES Act. It's just outrageous to me that companies that have returned billions of dollars to their shareholders can't care for the people on the front lines of this pandemic. It's just wrong. Yeah, you know, that is, you're right. You know, what comes next? Is there something that Congress can do to fix this stuff? Is there, are there any wins? I know that there's some stuff around the child care assistance grants and, and hazard pay and extended health care, but what, what should people be demanding in this moment? In the CARES Act, when there was a big debate about bailing out the airlines, uh, we got the House and Senate to agree to designate $3 billion that would be targeted to the subcontracted workers that are employed by catering services or cleaning services or the wheelchair baggage handlers, like all the service jobs in airports. Again, these are jobs in most cities that are done by black immigrants now because of the way immigration patterns have worked. But in certain cities, if the wages are high enough, uh, they're done by white and black workers. And so we got that money designated for their unemployment, their health care, and for wage assistance during the shutdown. We are trying to replicate that deray for healthcare workers as they move hundreds of billions of dollars into hospitals. There's no requirement that uh, workers get hazard pay on the front lines. There's no requirement of PPE connected to those dollars. There's no requirement that workers be able to sit at a table and talk about health and safety protections like we are doing in unionized facilities. And so that's what we're fighting for to get embedded in this next round. And then the other thing we have to do is cover the 19 million immigrants that were not covered in the CARES Act. We have a whole population in this country that has no access to health care or paid time off, and we aren't going to deal with this public health crisis unless we include immigrants in the public services. Got it. How is that? You know, I can only imagine that this administration has probably not been favorable to your workers. Have you seen a big shift? Are there cities that are doing this better than the federal government is sort of helping out? Are there bright spots? There are cities where we are in a better dialogue with mayors. Um, we have not yet seen mayors or governors be willing to confront corporations and their behavior. And so we are hard at work trying to find a governor or a mayor that would force the fast food franchises to a table to establish health and safety standards for those workers and to require two weeks of paid time, uh, which if the federal government isn't willing to legislate, we think we should um, make happen at the city and state level through political leadership being willing to use their executive authority. You know, like many governors have issued executive orders on the stay at home. They could also issue executive orders for workers to get the protection they need, the economic support they need, and the ability to self-quarantine in the event they get exposed. And that's just not standard practice right now for about 64 million service and care workers in the country. And it would be fabulous if a governor or mayor set a model that we could make happen when we take power at the federal level 
after January 2021. There we go. Now, I wanted to ask you, I used to run human capital in the school system in in Baltimore, and I wanted to talk about understaffing Mm. because I've seen these stories that like pharmacies and hospitals are running into dangerous understaffing. Is that really an issue? Like, what is that something you think about? Like, what do we do about that? You know, I've been organizing in our union for 40 years and understaffing has always been an issue. And even in unionized facilities, We use our bargaining power over our contracts to increase staffing. And then in some states, we've legislated staffing standards for nursing homes or hospitals. Um, So it's persistent. And I have to tell you, I just think it's criminal that we're having this staffing issue flare up again in the height of a public health pandemic. Uh, We have hospitals and nursing homes, if you can believe, that are furloughing and laying off people because they can't deal with canceling non-elective surgery and having to clear all their beds for COVID patients. It's the unpredictability and the lack of a coordinated federal response um, that has made healthcare institutions deal with staffing almost like fast food and retail are dealing with staffing where it's just in time, as opposed to a core workforce that's ready, willing, and able to serve people based on need. And that has to change. And we think we can change it through organizing more healthcare workers to make that demand. We did it through a national campaign that we launched in March called Protect All Workers, where we have a set of demands that we're making on employers, the federal government, state government, as a way to address it and to strengthen. Um, in California, we were able to get 10,000 workers added to the public health system where those are all unionized, good jobs that people can feed their families on and lead a decent life. And they're going to be added for testing and contract tracing. Boom. That is a, that's a lot of work. Is that, do we know, this is just because I'm curious, do your members cluster in certain parts of the country? Like, is it the South is overrepresented? Is it sort of spread out all across it? Like, how does that, how does that work? We are biggest in 15 states that are California, Illinois, and New York as the anchors And then Washington, Oregon, Michigan, Minnesota, there's like pockets. And then we have members in 22 additional states, DeRay. Like in Texas, we have janitors and healthcare workers in Houston. We have a group of healthcare workers in El Paso. And we have nursing home workers along the uh, Rio Grande Valley. And then in Florida, we have together probably 50,000 workers. And you know how big that state is. So our union has been committed to backing workers in the South and Southwest being able to join unions, but it's been in the most hostile of times. And so most of our work in that part of the country has been through civic engagement and trying to get people politically active in communities of color and in white working poor communities so that we can change the politics and create the conditions for more workers to be able to join together in unions. There we go. I also wanted to know, how does the recession, which we certainly are in, how does that impact union membership? We've had thirty to 40,000 airport workers laid off as a result of the collapse of the airline industry. And we expect, DeRay, that we will see more layoffs in state and local government as the federal government doesn't take responsibility for getting state and local government what they need in order to serve people through the 
public health, economic, and racial inequality crisis that we're um, mobilizing. But even with those reductions in membership, we are seeing the most explosive growth and expansion of workers wanting to join unions than in our entire history, which we find incredibly helpful and inspiring. And I think it's been assisted and supported by the Movement for Black Lives, the DREAMers doing demonstrations around the Supreme Court decision and immigration policy in this country and by the, you know, environmental movement and Sunrise doing their disruption at the beginning of this year. Like all these movements that seek to disrupt the current system and structures that hold racism and economic exploitation in place are great conditions for workers to be able to walk through their fear and join together in a union. What can a union do to protect the most marginalized? You talk about the percentage of women, you talk about uh, immigrants and, and people of color in the union. What can unions do to make sure that traditionally marginalized groups of people, women, black people, especially with with regard to race, that they are protected in the workplace uh, and in society. What can you do about that? The history of our union is to organize the most marginalized in society. We were born by immigrant flat janitors in Chicago deciding they weren't going to be servants anymore, and they demanded wages for their work. They were only paid basement apartments in a building that they kept clean, and it took them 10 years but they were able to join together and get recognition from the building owners. And that birthed our union. And so they were not treated as workers by the rest of the labor movement, but they stayed together and won their dignity is what our history tells us. And that's the history of our union with home care workers in California fighting for 11 years. They were treated as independent contractors. We fought and fought and fought and got a new law established. So Again, primarily women of color who were excluded because of a racist compromise in the 30s from the original labor laws. We got them written in, um, but it's state by state. Uh, Home care workers are still excluded nationally from being able to join together in a union. We just want it for family child care providers. Again, primarily women of color have never had the right to join a union. We fought for 17 years and Gavin Newsom finally signed a law that wrote them in. So the biggest thing we do, DeRay, is uh, rewrite the rules so that people have a shot of joining together and bargaining with the power of their collective action. And then the second thing we do is once they get their union is we bargain to deal with the conditions on the job. So home care workers were never getting their checks on time. They were never getting their correct hours. The wages were poverty. We've moved them from $3 an hour 20 years ago to 15, 17, 18, depending on what state you're in, fully paid individual health care, paid time off. And in three states, we've won retirement because these workers are also excluded from the Social Security Act, again, because of race. That's the second way we advocate. And the third way we advocate is by naming the problem and shining a light on the exclusion of uh, work based on race and gender and that we have to have a labor movement that includes everybody. So for the 46% of the workers in this country that don't have the right to form a union, we are using every ounce of our union's energy together with other union partners 
and with the rest of the progressive movement, environmental, immigration, racial justice, everybody fighting to make sure that workers can get a seat at the table and finally do a check on corporate power and end anti-Black structural racism once and for all. So our union unites those fights. We don't think of ourselves as just bargaining wages, hours, and working conditions because it doesn't really deal with improving the lives of the most marginalized in our society. We have to have a comprehensive fight that deals with racial injustice, economic injustice, and links them to the other things like clean air and clean water, welcoming immigrants, and making sure that everybody's treated with dignity and respect. Now, you know, Mary Kay, I couldn't have this conversation with you without asking about the police. Absolutely. Let's talk about it. So police unions, uh, do you represent the police? And if you do, uh, will you continue to represent police unions, given what we know about how they are outliers when we think about all of the issues uh, that we face around equity and justice? Yeah, what we've done inside of SEIU, we do represent police. We have 15,000 members who are in police. Some are sworn officers, some are civilian employees in police departments. And then we have about 100,000 corrections officers that identify as law enforcement. And then we have other kinds of public safety officers in probation and parole that are part of state and local government, depending on which city or geography in. And so what we did seven years ago, I think you were part of this, DeRay, when Michael Brown was murdered in Ferguson, is we began a journey in our union to link the fights of racial and economic justice and wove into our analysis that we couldn't win economic justice for working people unless we fought and won racial justice. And we've spent the last seven years educating every member and local about how to apply that in their own work and how to begin to bargain over racial justice issues in workplaces where people get reassigned based on race or people aren't treated equally based on race. There's lots of things beyond employment discrimination that we're now trying to fight for in the workplace. Most recently, what we did to build on that resolution that we adopted then two years after that task force, we adopted a union-wide resolution and resourced becoming an anti-racist organization at every level of our organization. And then two weeks ago, adopted a resolution that supported the movement for Black Lives and have used that resolution to stake a position on police unions that calls for a dialogue that reimagines the role of police and criminal justice across the board and demands that we divest from and demilitarize the police and invest in and build black communities. And we are working through each and every one of our police units in a dialogue to get them to commit to acknowledging the problem of anti-black structural racism in all of our communities and to take steps to use the union as a force for change, not as a shield for abusive behavior. And DeRay, I would tell you we're in the middle of it. I hope to be able to report a breakthrough. But as you know from the activism in the streets, uh, we're all learning to understand in L.A., what does divest mean? In Atlanta, what does divest mean? In Minneapolis, what does divest mean? And those questions are getting answered in a dialogue 
with the black leadership and black communities that we believe we have to back in this moment. So that's how we're addressing uh, the role of police unions inside of SEIU. And then we're trying to link arms across the labor movement and learn from other efforts. But I have to tell you, my lived experience in the past three weeks of deep dialogue and struggle, and I'm not going to kid you, this has been a struggle, is that people are trying to grapple with shifting from reform to restructuring. And people have to kind of get into the struggle to understand we've called for training before, we called for body cameras. This is not about tinkering around the edges. This is about a fundamental shift in the structure of policing. And that's what we are in the middle of uh, making happen inside of SEIU and we think across uh, the country. Okay. Well, I, I would look forward to see uh, what happens with the police unions. Cool. Well, thanks so much for joining us today on Pod Save the People. We consider you a friend of the pod and can't wait to have you back. Wonderful. Thank you, DeRay. Well, that's it. Thanks so much for tuning in to Pod Save the People this week. Tell your friends to check it out. Make sure to rate it wherever you get your podcast, whether it's Apple Podcasts or somewhere else. And we'll see you next week. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. You can start your day off right. When you find a professional on Angie to get your plumbing right first. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that.